Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Stephen Davis. Dr. Stephen Davis is an emeritus professor of philosophy at the University of Auckland, and his area of expertise is the philosophy of art um, and aesthetics. And today, he's here to talk to us about a great book uh, called Adornment, What Self Decoration tells us about who we are, published by Bloomsbury. Uh, Stephen, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Um, can you please briefly introduce yourself for our audience? Tell us a little about your field of expertise and, uh, more importantly, how this book came about and why you decided to write a book about adornment. Um, so I write on the philosophy of the arts, as you said, and In addition, I have an interest in evolution and human development and the connections between the two, so the way in which the arts might have featured in our evolutionary development. Um, In 2012, I wrote a book called The Artful Species that explored that topic, and it looked at not only the arts but our aesthetic interests in the world. So I had chapters on our interest in the environment, and landscape, on um, our attitude to non-human animals, and on human beauty itself. And that chapter on human beauty led me into a literature, I mean, it wasn't specifically on adornment, but it made a connection to a literature that discusses adornment. And because I was looking for things that characterised our species, um, it occurred to me that the thing that almost everyone does is adorn themselves or their environment. Um, So if we're looking for something universal and important, and we need to establish the importance of adornment, but it it plays a crucial role in social intercourse, um, then I thought that uh, this topic, which is strangely neglected, should get more attention. And I read extensively in uh, ethnographic literature, anthropology, and uh, the history of previous uh, um, civilizations like the Maya and the Egyptians and so on. And and uh, one fascinating part of this book when I was reading it is just this wealth of resources you've used. You talk about evolutionary psychology, you talk about philosophy. There is a lot of information, archaeological information in there as well, which makes it quite a fascinating read. And uh, these are some of the things we'll be talking about soon. Um, but before that, let's talk about 
uh, adornments. You, you mentioned that we cannot just simply dismiss adornment as something, as a meaningless practice. It has been an important part of our cultural evolution for thousands of years. Can you talk more about that? So we don't know any people who do not adorn. Um, and it doesn't seem to matter how far back you go into prehistory. It's difficult to get the evidence, um, but where there is evidence, for example, that we collected ochre, it goes back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and though ochre could have a variety of uses, um, in every society where it's collected, it's used to paint the body, for example. So it's used decoratively. So it's important because we all do it, but it's important in other ways as well. Some decoration is meaningless. I mean, it's just a mark. But lots of decorations send messages, either intended or not, about the wearer because they identify who we are, um, who we affiliate with, what we're interested in, what we value. And this is very important social messaging between people. And, and I myself was surprised when I was reading the book that some of the evidence of a dormant goes back to hundreds of thousands of years ago, because the wildest guess I had like was 40,000 years ago. But again, like I said, I was really surprised to read more about that. And uh, let's start with a definition. Uh, how do we define adornment? What do we count as decoration or adornment? And uh, what is the nature of this practice? So is any bodily change, does any bodily change count as adornment? Um, the answer to the last question is not every change does. So I characterize adornment as involving three levels of intention. The first level is to, to beautify something or to, to make it aesthetically special. Sometimes it's awesomeness, sometimes it's beauty. Um, but then there's the intention that other people notice this. And finally, there's the third intention that they're supposed to realize that this is being done deliberately for their notice. Um, so typically I'm trying to, if I'm decorating myself, I'm trying to do something that beautifies me or improves me aesthetically. And I want you to know it. And I want you to know that I want you to know it. <clears throat> Though the practice can become habitual. So the intention recedes into the background and it could also become ritualized, in which case it'll work to produce a dormant even if the intention isn't present. Um, but typically, the, the intention's there. Um, now, if I intend to make an aesthetic improvement by having cosmetic surgery, I normally don't want you to know that I've done it. Um, so that wouldn't count as adornment. Another thing that would, uh, I mean, I might go to the gym and exercise, and again, I might have an aesthetic intention in the background there doesn't have to be, I should say doesn't have to be the focus or the primary intention it might be uh, my primary intention might be to get fit but I might have as a secondary intention that I want to enhance myself um, but if all I'm doing is maintaining my fitness then that's not going to be a dormant that would be 
something that I class as um, bodily maintenance. So, uh, so, so the aesthetic dimension is central to this definition in a way. Uh, That's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are these days, well, there are a lot of, let's I don't know, they call them fitness freaks or something else that they deliberately, they do go, of course, to gym for, uh, for health purposes, but there's, they also uh, take on a lot of drugs to, to enhance the size of the muscles. So that, uh, that does count as a dormant in a way because they want others to notice. Uh, I, I, yeah, there are cases, these are exceptional, but there are cases that I treat as adornment because they take an ordinary process beyond the, the norm and make a show of it. And when that happens, um, it could be adornment. So to take quite a, a different but extreme kind of case, um, foot binding, as it was done in China, could be a form of adornment given the appropriate aesthetic intentions, which surprisingly were there um but it'll be if everybody does it um that's more like a regular bodily thing um but the people who took it to extremes might count as adorners nevertheless mm. and uh apart but, from sorry, I, i'm so... not adorning myself when i brush my teeth at the end of the meal that's <laughs> that's like regular bodily maintenance bodily maintenance yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to actually to ask about that, but it's great you brought it up here and you covered that question. Uh, so apart from aesthetic dimensions, do you think that adornment could also have a practical function for at least human species? <clears throat> oh, it very often has a practical function. So it might be there to indicate my religious um, mm. beliefs um, or, or my status, my wealth, um, it could indicate that I'm married, that I'm a parent. So it could indicate all sorts of things and in that sense have practical functions of delivering information about me to other people. And, and in the book, you talk about several qualities that we all have in common with, with other species. But I really like this phrase you that homo sapiens are decorating species. So is, is adornment, what's the difference between the way we adorn our bodies and other species do? And can we say that adornment, with regards to the definition you provided at the beginning, is what sets us apart from other species and animals? Um, I think animals do things that are the basis of human adornment. They do some, some things that are similar. Um, but I doubt that they've got aesthetic intentions or experiences. Um, so when a bower bird constructs a bower and dances around in it to attract a mate, it's very like what people do, but I'm sceptical that it counts as adornment because I don't think there are those three levels of intention that I mentioned before. But we're not the only species that adorns, so... There were hominin species before us, or at the same time, in the case of Neanderthals, who did some kinds of adorning behaviours. They're now extinct, those species. So we're the only one that remains. But they, no species um, was a, as obsessed with adornment as ours. 
So Neanderthals did some adorning type things. They painted some caves. They created some adorning artifacts. The most spectacular one is a necklace of interlocking eagle talons. I mean, that's pretty special. Um, So they did adorn, but they didn't show the same, even when we overlap with them in Europe about 40,000 years ago, they didn't show the same obsession with adornment that our species does. Um, so you, you mentioned some mating practices in some birds and animals, which kind of brings me to the next question. But before that, I, I came to know about evolution psychology through a very good friend of mine, whom we shared the same office back in Auckland University when I was doing my PhD there. And it was a student, Brian Boyd. And I learned a lot from him from evolution psychology, but we didn't tend to agree uh, because I was doing uh, English literature and I was more towards these, uh, you know, cultural studies or post-structural studying, uh, understanding of society, let's say. And he came to teach me a lot about evolution psychology, and I could see the value there, but at the same time, I always sometimes had my disagreements as well. But I will bring it up later on so that I, uh, so that I can get your, your take on that as well. But in the book, you talk about how evolutionist theorists and also um, paleoarchaeologists address the topic of adornment. And there's this term used, behavioral modernity. Uh, it would be great if you could talk about this topic. What is behavioral modernity and how do evolutionary theorists and also um, paleoarchaeologists address this topic? And there is some disagreement among them as well. So our species goes back several hundred thousand years. And at least 150,000 years ago, we were anatomically modern. That is, they had bodies just like ours. But there's a question about whether they had minds just like ours. And it seemed to people, and I'm talking about 40 years ago, it seemed to people that there was a great cultural flowering that took place in Europe 40,000 years ago. And they speculated, so this is when you get the cave paintings at Altamira and Lascaux and Chauvet and things like that. Um... And they speculated that sometime around then there was a change to the brain that made us psychologically modern. Now, that was the idea of psychological modernity. Our ancestors didn't think the way we do until about 40,000 years ago. They were, the species goes back much further than that. That thesis has been undermined progressively since then. Um, And what's undermined it is basically the discovery in Africa and many other places of clever technologies and cultural thinking that seems perfectly modern. So the view that I would prefer now is to think that we were always psychologically as we are now. But the explanation for why um, things changed Uh, is really that most of the time our species lived in circumstances where the numbers were very small and um, they were subject to fluctuations in the climate and all sorts of other things. It made it very difficult for them to sustain their clever technologies. So they'd invent something and then it would disappear. Um, Whereas we're used to assuming that 
we pass our technology down from generation to generation and improve it as we go. Um, something like that has been happening for the last 40,000 years and didn't happen before that, but it wasn't because there was a change to our brains. It was because of the environmental circumstances under which people lived. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And uh, in... Uh there's a section of the book where you talk about um, how men and women approach adornment differently, the, the topic of self-decoration differently. What are the main differences between men and women in, in their conception of adornment? So I'm going to rely on some generalizations when I discuss this um, because there are exceptions everywhere. But uh, here's the idea Uh, We're trying to get mates of the highest quality we can. And to do this, we appeal to the preferences of the other sex. And it turns out, according to evolutionary psychologists, that men and women have different preferences, partly to do with the roles they play in biological reproduction. So according to evolutionary psychologists, men like youthful beauty and place a very high value on that. And the reason why they have that preference is it correlates with um, fertility in women, basically. Um, On the other hand, it's claimed that women have a preference for wealth and status in their partners, as well as health. And... Now, the idea is that we're going to decorate ourselves to accentuate the things the other sex finds attractive. So when women decorate themselves, they'll try to look younger and more beautiful. And when men do it, they will be accenting their um, social achievements and wealth more. So they adopt different kinds of decorations. Um And if we start out with that idea and then go looking for it, it turns out to be a very good predictor of at least some decorations that people go in for. Having said that, I'm sceptical in all sorts of ways about this. So we we keep on decorating after we've found our mates and after we've had children and the rest of it. Um, And it's clear, I think, that the self-decoration stuff is as much about projecting our own identity and social place as it is about trying to attract a mate. Even if it starts off in some places with the mate attraction goal. Um, So what's more, our decorations can send messages about all sorts of other things 
um, that I haven't mentioned there that aren't to do with reproduction. They're to do with how we want to get on in the world and how we want to be thought of and so on. Um, so the evolutionary psychologist's ideas give us a starting point, but I don't think they're entirely reliable. Um, what's more, I think they, they they reinforce some unfortunate stereotypes. Um, they overlook the fact that if we're going to raise children successfully, we need a lot more things in a partner than money or good looks. Um, so it turns out, I think, when, even when we're looking for mates, we value lots of things more than evolutionary psychologists tend to talk about. But um, one thing that this led me to think about was that um, if evolutionary psychologists are right, then we should be um, distrustful of other people's adornments because they're trying to use the adornment to make themselves more attractive um, so that they can get a better catch. Um, and indeed, at least in the case of men, that seems like a plausible view because when you look at the history of cosmetics, for example, which is one of the ways women might change their appearance to make themselves look more beautiful. Um, though of course, men use cosmetics as well, but focusing here on women's use of cosmetics, um, it turns out that there's a lot of literature attacking cosmetics written by men, uh, where the worry is that somehow it's a, a form of cheating and vanity. Um so on the one hand, you know, men are attracted by women who look good and, and some people use cosmetics to achieve that end. On the other hand, they're suspicious of the use of cosmetics. So there's something you can predict on the basis of assuming that the evolutionary psychologists are onto something. And then again, when you look for it, you find it. You, you raised a number of important points, and the point that I said earlier about me learning a lot from my friend, but at the same time have had some differences with him was basically some of the issues you just raised. I, I actually, you, you in the book you mentioned that evolutionary psychology, the findings of evolutionary psychology is sometimes based on generalization, and they ignore some of the exceptions. But but of course there is a scientific element, or there is this hardiness to their findings as well. So it's a good starting point. It's not the only, let's say, uh, findings that is only that is reliable. There are other elements in that as well. And um, again, the point you said about men being skeptical of cosmetic surgeries or some of the uh, beautifying practices women adopt. I remember that I'm originally from Iran. In my country, cosmetic surgery is very, very popular and very, very affordable. And 10 years ago, there were some caricatures in some magazines which were highly I must say, misogynistic in some ways, that there's this man who has married a beautiful woman, but when they have a baby, the baby turns out to be ugly because the woman had gone through some cosmetic surgery. So like I said, the, looking at it from evolutionary psychology, I could see what was going on, but you can't ignore the fact that some of these caricatures were highly misogynistic as well. And I think some of the findings of evolutionary psychology could easily be misinterpreted as being uh, misogynistic maybe, 
Um, there's, I, yeah, I, I, on, please. I agree with this, um, with your view. Um, and when the early forms of evolutionary psychology, when it was called sociobiology, were criticised for this, um, I mean, they are supposedly telling us about human nature. And the idea that women prefer men with wealth or status, um, I, I'm not so sure that that's human nature. That might reflect simple, simply ways we organise culture and the kind of power that men have. So that if women are, are equally provisioned, as happens in a few societies, then it's not obvious that they'll always choose for wealth and status as opposed to anything else. Mm. Mm. So they're making assumptions about um, the way societies are arranged. Also, they're making assumptions about the way children are raised. So there's a bias towards the idea that it happens within a nuclear family. Um, whereas, again, that's not inevitable. Mm. And uh, again, because I, I was in Auckland University, so I knew the works of Professor Brian Boyd, and I came to more understand about literary Darwinism as well. And this example that you mentioned, uh, I think it was in one of Jane Austen's novels. I don't remember the novel, unfortunately, that there's this man who is trying to attract a lady, so he shows off his, his, his mansion, which is a status symbol, a symbol of his wealth and power. And the lady is also beautiful, so it's a, evolution speaking, it's a perfect match, and it's doing the same thing that maybe some birds are doing, decorating their nests to attract um, a female. But that was only one way of looking at it, which was an extreme, a very interesting way of looking at literature. But there were other cultural or sociopolitical elements as well, which, which I thought were being ignored if we only look at it from that perspective. Um, and um, another point about attracting mate and decoration that you mentioned about evolutionary psychology. So it seems that animals are also doing it, but you did mention it in the earlier that they don't do it with an aesthetic dimension. So can we say that when we interpret, we make these comparisons between humans and animals, maybe to some part it's our own anthropomorphic projection onto the animals in terms of the way they decorate themselves to attract mates? Uh, I think that, though there are many people who don't, they think that uh, animals are genuine decorators and they certainly do things that are similar um, but I think it's rather than saying that's beautiful it's more like saying um, I'd like to mate with that not exactly the same thing mm -hmm. and uh, the part so in a way we can say human species we are as you mentioned in your uh, the title of your artful species, we, we tend to decorate, self-decorate. Um, our cultural, cre cre cultural creations of humans, such as storytelling, is that also, evolution speaking, a part of our species? Um, I think we are. We're narrators. Um, and that's not just speaking it's telling a story it's constructing a narrative um, and we do it all the time and then with the capacity we fictionalize it and tell made-up stories and entertain ourselves with those but history is narrative 
um, our stories about who we are and narratives, um, and we construct them. So that seems to be a very fundamental thing for our species in explaining itself to itself. Mm -hmm. And, and in terms of decorating and the storytelling, some cave paintings are, uh, sorry, sometimes these stories are transported onto our bodies. So when I was in New Zealand, I did not know about the Maori practice of bodily writing, which is called um, moko, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And I was told that it, it tells the story, the biography maybe, the background of the, uh, of, the, <clears throat> of the area that the person comes from. So do you consider that also to be a form of um, decoration or... As long, as long as the aesthetic intention is present. Um, so I might get um, a person's name tattooed on my body in, as a memorial when they die. They're a friend of mine, let's say. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be a decoration. But if I intended it to and instructed that it be given a certain aesthetic character, as well as naming the person, um, then it would be a decoration. Uh, Professor Stephen Davies, uh, thank you very, very much for talking to us about your great book, The Dormant, What Self-Decoration Tells Us About Who We Are. Um, it's a great book, and it's very easy to read in terms of there are, each, there are different chapters. Each I'm just introducing the book to our audience, you know, for one who, who would hopefully pick up the book to read. There's a section on clothing. There's a section on bodily writing or tattoos. Um, and it's highly accessible and easily easily understood, despite the fact that you deal with some really com complicated concepts. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us on New Books Network. Thank you.